Did you ever stop and think about church being held in the first century? What was it like? What kinds of things did the believers do when they gathered together? We, we know that they didn't have church buildings or praise teams or video projectors or copy machines to run off uh, orders of worship. So what did they do? What was their services like? Were they full of pomp and liturgy, like some churches today? Were they ecclesiastical productions with a flair for drama and show? Were they exciting and charged with emotion? Or were they simply informal gatherings for instruction and and sharing just what were they like well we know some of the elements that were included in their services like prayer and singing and preaching and the lord's supper and we are careful to include those things in our services today but you know we really don't have a clear picture of all that went on and how It was all put together. And that's fine. That's fine. In fact, I believe the Holy Spirit intentionally left us free to adapt our services to our culture. And even to the type of people who worship in a given congregation. You know, obviously our services are going to be different than those in Jamaica or Thailand Or Mexico. And there are some people in Chatham who would rather worship in a more emotionally charged service than ours, or a more formal and traditional service than ours. And that's that's perfectly all right. Congregations have different personalities and therefore can minister to different kinds of people. But there are some guidelines that all congregations should follow, no matter the culture. And I believe Paul spelled these out to the church in Corinth, giving us a glimpse into their services and giving us some instruction for today. In spite of the variables, the freedom we have in worship, It's vital that proclamation of God's will be made in the church, that members be given the opportunity to participate, to exercise their gifts, and feel a part of what's going on, and that nothing is done that unnecessarily puts the church in a bad light in the community, that that nothing improper is done in their services. Now, those are very basic, but I believe very important. So let's study them together this morning. We're in the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians, ready for verses 20 through 25. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, 
And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. If therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God declaring that God is certainly among you. Now, Paul has been discussing the problem of tongues in Corinth and apparently has that in mind when he indicates that they need to think through this matter in a mature manner. That they shouldn't simply embrace everything that goes on in a church and appears to be religious. They shouldn't just accept everything that comes along. They should think things through. In evil, they should be babes, but not in their thinking. And they had unquestionably assumed that Everyone who claimed to have the gift of tongues had it, and that they should be allowed to express it in the church. So Paul says, think again. Think again about the purpose for which tongues were given. That will help you evaluate what's going on. He then loosely quotes from Isaiah 28, where the prophet says, the time is coming when the Israelites would hear strange tongues and that it would be a sign that what God's prophets had said was true. Now, this was fulfilled when Assyria conquered the land. The tongues of foreigners in Israel confirmed the truthfulness of God's messengers. So Paul concludes tongues are a sign Not for believers, but for unbelievers. It's a sign to confirm the message of God's spokesman. A sign that unbelievers, those who doubt the prophets, would be given. Now, he does add that God realized that most still wouldn't listen to him, but the Jews looked for a sign, and he provided those signs. Tongues, therefore, were primarily a sign for unbelieving Jews. And that's how they were used in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit enabled individuals to speak in unlearned foreign languages, both on Pentecost and in the home of Cornelius, as a sign that what was being said was from God. They were a sign for unbelievers. That meant they weren't primarily intended for use in the church. Prophecy, however, was intended for the church. Now, the New American Standard inserts here the words, is for a sign, referring to prophecy, that prophecy is for a sign, making it appear that prophecy 
is a sign, but that's not really in the text itself. Paul's not talking about foretelling the future as a sign. You know, that is a sign, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about foretelling the future, but that he's referring to prophecy in the the, the broader sense. Prophecy as speaking forth the mind and will of God. And that's what was intended for the church. That's what's to go on when we gather. And he goes on to clarify that by, by saying if the church was assembled and everyone was speaking in tongues, languages that no one understood, anyone coming into the meeting would just think they're crazy. Now, some have gone to Pentecostal meetings and were not accustomed to what they were about to see. And there's some frustration. You walk away going, wow, what was that? What was that? And Paul says that's, that's what will happen if people don't know what's going on. Something that was supposed to be addressed to unbelievers is being shared and no one understands what's going on. It was to be a sign to indicate the truthfulness of a prophet's message. It, it wasn't intended to be nonsense addressed to one another. That's not what's supposed to go on when believers gather. Instead, they're to prophesy. They're to share what's going on in in their life as it relates to God's will. They are to instruct one another in the mind and will of God. They are to share His Word with each other. And then if someone comes into their assembly, he will hear something that makes sense. And perhaps he'll be converted by what he hears. He can take it to heart and recognize his need to confess his sin and throw himself on the mercy of God, finding forgiveness and peace. That's the kind of speaking that's to be done when believers gather. Proclamation of the mind and will of God. And even then, the preaching is to be directed to believers not to unbelievers who just might happen to come. And I believe that's, that's the problem with so many churches today that claim to be evangelistic or seeker-sensitive. They preach to the unbeliever when the room is full of believers and then wonder why the believers never grow spiritually, never come to maturity in their understanding of God's Word. Prophecy, preaching in the church, is for believers. It's the unveiling of the mind and will of God for Christians. And it's got to go beyond the plan of salvation. You know, now if, a, if an unbeliever comes and the Spirit is working in their life, they may very well come under conviction and ask about the basics. They will see things and hear things that make sense and, and want to know more. Hopefully they will cry out, what must I do? To be saved. And then the plan of salvation can be presented to them. Then we can give them detailed teaching about baptism. We don't have to keep talking the plan of salvation and baptism every Sunday to those who've already received it and who understand it. I think that's, that's a fundamental error that's done in a lot of evangelistic churches. We want the gospel to be proclaimed We've got to go beyond the initial message to a full understanding of God's Word.
I believe that's, that's very, very important. We want unbelievers to benefit from the services, but the proclamation is directed to believers. And that proclamation is a very important part of our church service. But that's not all. That's not all that's to take place. Nor is it to be a one-man show. There's to be participation in the church. We've been talking about gifts. Paul's talking about you participating in worship. Let's read on. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. And let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Paul says when you assemble, everyone, everyone should participate. Church is not a spectator sport. All should come with a psalm, a song to share, or at least come and share in the songs. You know, singing is a very important part of our services, and everyone should participate. Nothing is more disconcerting than to see someone sitting there with a scowl on their face or a blank look on their face while the rest of the body is joining together in praise to God. You know, even if you don't know the song, you can read along. We've got them on the wall. The words are there. So you can at least look and think and say, Amen. I agree with that message. That's being proclaimed. So everyone should come with a psalm, he says, or a teaching or a revelation to share. There should be an opportunity for all to share what they've been discovering in God's word. Now, if that's not done in the worship service, it should at least be done during Sunday school. And that, by the way, means everyone should stay for Sunday school. Okay? You really should. You really should. Because that's when everyone has an opportunity to ask questions and to share their thoughts. That's when you have an opportunity to really participate if you're not doing something specific to participate during the worship service. I think it's very, very important that you be given the opportunity to reflect to think, to share, to ask questions, to give your input, and to share your insights into God's Word. Paul also adds that if there are those in the church who have something to share through tongues, through the medium of foreign languages, 
That's fine as long as it's interpreted. So all can be edified by it. In fact, everything we do in our services should be for edification, for building up of the church. And then, since tongues had become a problem in Corinth, Paul specifically outlines the proper procedure if they are to be used in the service. And he begins by noting that the use of tongues should be limited, that no more than two or three should speak in tongues when believers assemble. Again, their primary purpose was to confirm the message of the apostles and the prophets to unbelieving Jews, not as a worship exercise. But if someone has something to say through the gift of tongues, he should be allowed to do so, so long as no more than two or three do so. They should take turns, never speaking at the same time, and what they say is to be interpreted. If it can't be interpreted, Paul said they should keep quiet. Which, by the way, I believe serves as a check on ecstatic, uh, nonsensical utterances that no one can translate. He then goes on to make sure even prophecy doesn't get out of hand. Apparently, more than one usually preached or shared what God had revealed when they gathered together. In fact, Paul says two or three should do so. And their messages should be discussed by the body. No one person was to be considered God's only spokesman in the church with the final word. If someone had light on the topic being discussed or scripture being studied, they were to be given the floor. Everyone was to be given the opportunity to share what they felt God's will was in the situation so all could learn and all be exhorted. No one was to claim that God only spoke through him, that he was the only one who understood and that his message was so important that everyone else had to be quiet and listen. Now, obviously, it is nice when you're quiet and listen for a while. But that shouldn't be all that takes place when we're learning together. You need the freedom to speak. Everyone who has the gift of being able to speak forth the mind and will of God, the gift of prophecy, Paul says, should express it. Now, I'm not sure how that would work in our service if we had two or three sermons every Sunday. But we do have devotional thoughts given during praise time. We have communion meditations. We have excellent communion meditations in our worship service. Children are being taught in the nursery and in we worship and in junior worship as well as Sunday school. And anyone who wants to discuss the message I bring is invited to join us in the fellowship hall and discuss what I have to say. So we may, in fact, come close to following Paul's instruction here. The important thing is that everyone be given the opportunity to participate, to utilize the gifts the Holy Spirit has given, to feel that they're more than just spectators at a religious event. But still, 
Paul says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Everything should be done in a way that all may learn, all may be exhorted, and all may be built up in their faith. Church services aren't to be turned into free-for-alls. We've got to be careful not to act improperly. We must maintain a sense of propriety in the church. It's a word we don't use a lot today. Well, let's read on. Picking up in the middle of verse 33, and I do think the NIV is correct in dividing the sentence here. As in all the churches of the saints, let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But let them subject themselves just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth or has come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Now, those first few verses are a little inflammatory, and they raise maybe a question or two. Let's try to think this through. Let's think this through, all right? Now, we've already seen that there was a problem in Corinth knowing what women should and shouldn't do in the church. They had been liberated by the gospel, but were going so far as to shock the society in which they lived. They were throwing their veils away and giving the wrong impression. Respectable women in Corinth wore veils over their faces in public. So Paul told them to put their veils back on. And by doing so, to publicly acknowledge that they were still under the authority of their husbands. Now, he's already made it clear in this letter that women could pray and even prophesy in church if they kept their veils on. So he's not saying they couldn't participate in the services when he says, let the women keep silent. That's not what he's saying. I believe what he's saying is that they were not to challenge the authority of men in the church. He has just said that others should pass judgment on what the prophets had to say. But he doesn't want to give the impression that women should publicly challenge what men had to say in the church. To do so, he said, would be improper. It would make it look as if women didn't respect the leadership, the headship given to men. 
He said, if you disagree with something, if you have a question about something a man says in the service, rather than object and argue with him, ask your husband at home about it. I think that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He's not saying women can't participate in worship, that they can't sing or even prophesy in the church, only that they must not challenge men's authority over them or even appear to do so. I think we've got to be careful that our worship services are not misunderstood by the society in which we live. We must care about what the world thinks of us because we represent our Lord to them. And if our practices seem improper to them, we better reexamine them in light of the Scripture. After all, as Paul points out, we didn't write the Bible So we may very well have misunderstood something as the women in Corinth misunderstood how to demonstrate their equality with men before Christ. And he says God's word didn't just come to us. So we've got to be careful that our attempts to understand and put into practice what we think the Bible is saying don't cause problems in the church at large. Because what we do here reflects on the kingdom of God. Paul then adds that if anyone thinks himself a prophet or even spiritual, he should recognize that what he has just said is from the Lord. If he doesn't, Paul says he should be ignored. He realized that some would not want to give up speaking in tongues in every service. Or acting like the sole prophetic voice for a body. Or submitting to the authority of men. But everything was to be done properly and in an orderly manner in the church. All should, deny, should desire to know and share God's word. And legitimate gifts must be expressed. But no one should insist on doing what they want to do at the expense of an orderly worship service. Everything should be done in a way that reflects well on our Lord. Because the reputation of our Lord rests with the reputation of his people. And if the world thinks we're crazy and out of control, it'll think that our God is a God of confusion. On the other hand, if our services are lifeless and void of emotion, the world will think our God is dead, or at least detached from life. So it does matter. It does matter what we do when we come together for worship. We can't just say anything goes and assume the Spirit is leading if there's spontaneity in our services. Nor can we keep the reins held so tightly that no one other than the paid professionals participate. We need to find balance in worship that honors our Lord, gives everyone the opportunity to participate, and yet doesn't take the focus off the Lord and put it on us. We need to surrender to his Lordship. Respect 
the authority of those God has placed over us and simply do our part to make sure everyone is edified when they come to worship. Very fundamental, very practical, and applicable in every culture. If you've not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, if you're not participating in worship when we gather, if you're not using the gifts God has given you to edify others, I encourage you to do so. Get involved in what we do. Now, not all gifts will be expressed in the assembly. As we've said before, many gifts of service and ministry take place in other venues, other times, even outside the body itself as we seek to be the body of Christ in the world. But I'm convinced more of us need to be involved in the ministry of encouraging and teaching and sharing and understanding and feeding each other than we do. One of the things I enjoy so much about my little Wednesday night Bible study is not that it's a little Bible study, but that we have a chance to really learn from each other. I really get excited when I learn things from those who are around that ping pong table. Okay? I'm not the only one who teaches here. We have great Bible studies. We have Sunday school classes. Teachers work very hard to be able to to challenge children and adults. The fellowship time back in the fellowship hall is a time just to, to get acquainted and then sit down and stay and ask questions and listen and participate. Church will be so much more if you're involved in it. Okay? It's not a spectator sport. And it should never be. It should never be. I think Paul's got some things to say to us here. Hopefully he challenges us as we enter a new year to maybe do things a little differently in our lives, even our services, I don't know, to encourage everyone to be what God's called us to be so we can learn together and grow together and serving together. That's what the church is. It's not just a religious service a life together. I encourage you. I encourage you to get involved. Let's stand.